I next met with Dr. Owen O'Connor to discuss some lymphoma papers, beginning with Abstract 780, looking at outcomes of patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and testicular involvement. I actually thought this was a very interesting study done by the International Extranodal Lymphoma Study Group, which, given the rarity of these diseases, the only way you can really study them is through cooperative efforts just like this. And recently, as many of you probably know, the standard of care for patients who have testicular diffuse large B-cell lymphoma has always been to make the diagnosis following a orchiectomy and to treat these patients with RCHOP-based chemotherapy with intrathecal methotrexate prophylaxis followed by radiation to the contralateral testicle. And so one of the unique features of testicular diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is that it has a remarkable penchant to go to the central nervous system. So in this particular study that had been reported by Tilio and colleagues, they actually wanted to study the impact of rituximab on this particular patient population because rituximab, as you well know, at conventional doses probably doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier to any significant event. So again, they looked at 88 evaluable patients, most of whom had RCHOP-based chemotherapy, 40 of whom had CHOP-like chemotherapy without rituximab. And interestingly, they didn't see any difference in the time to CNS relapse in those patients that had rituximab added to the regimen versus those that didn't, which really supports the contention that rituximab is probably not getting into the blood-brain barrier and modifying the natural history of that disease. And interestingly, in both arms, the incidence of CNS relapse in those patients was 27% in the RCHOP arm and 23% in the CHOP arm, so fairly high levels of relapse in the central nervous system for those patients with testicular large cell lymphoma. Now, these patients didn't have CNS prophylaxis? So many of these patients did have CNS prophylaxis as part of the regimen. And what do we know about the benefit of CNS prophylaxis? Well, that's an interesting question. And as you know, there's been studies that have actually looked at it. And if you go back to the study originally reported by Rich Fisher and colleagues in the National High Priority Study, where they compared RCHOP to a whole variety of other more dose-dense regimens, some of which included intrathecal prophylaxis, others of which included systemic methotrexate, there really didn't seem to be a substantial difference. And if I recollect properly, a lot of this data had been presented by Steve Bernstein from Rochester, and it showed that across the board, there was this basal rate of probably about 3% or so of patients that actually developed CNS disease that didn't appear to be substantially impacted by either intrathecal therapy or whether they got high-dose systemic methotrexate as a part of the regimen. So we really lack really good randomized studies that can actually answer the question about the role of intrathecal prophylaxis in this set of patients. We do know that there are studies that have been done by Jim Rubenstein and a variety of others looking at high doses of rituximab, even intrathecal rituximab, which can be given into the central nervous system. And so there are studies that are actually looking at the potential role of rituximab in patients that have primary CNS diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, but really no good randomized studies. How about paper 958 looking at antibiotic treatment as a management of patients with diffuse large B-cell of the stomach? Yeah, that's another very interesting paper. And in this study that was presented by Govi and colleagues, they actually looked at 16 patients who had diffuse large B-cell lymphoma of the stomach. And 
Many of you are aware that gastric lymphomas commonly involve malt lymphomas of the stomach can be very responsive to antibiotic-based therapy. And in this particular study, they had 16 patients, 11 of whom had found on histopathologic diagnosis, had some pre-existing malt. Five of those 16 patients were actually found to have de novo diffuse large B-cell lymphoma without any evidence of coexistent malt lymphoma. And they treated these patients with a really standard antibiotic regimen for Heliobacter pylori, and a lot of these patients were diagnosed with H. pylori as part of the criteria to be treated. And they were treated with clarithromycin at 500 milligrams BID, tinidazole for 500 BID, and omiprazole 20 BID for seven days. And I have to say I was fairly surprised that in this very aggressive disease, they actually achieved eight patients who had a complete response So that's half of the 16 patients that they enrolled on study. And three of them had a partial remission, two of whom went on to have complete remissions after rituximab. After about 53 months, they were able to demonstrate that nine of the 10 patients who had a complete remission remained disease-free, while all of the other patients who didn't respond to the antibiotic-based therapy had to go on to receive conventional chemotherapy, all of whom actually attained a CR. And at the time of presentation of this study, with about 50, 55 months of follow-up, no patient in their study had died on study as a result of the lymphoma. Is this a strategy you think is worth considering outside a trial setting? It might be. And, you know, historically, treating aggressive large B-cell lymphoma with an antibiotic-based regimen is some that might make most oncologists a little uneasy. But clearly, this is a small study, but in my mind, it's fairly provocative that one could treat an aggressive disease that historically even I have treated with conventional RCHOP-based chemotherapy regimens. The fact that you could treat these patients and get half of them to have complete responses with antibiotics, I think, is provocative. And maybe more importantly, if you try to think about the setting for a scenario like this, trying to think about elderly patients who may not be really the best candidates for combination chemotherapy. So if you're trying to look at trying to risk stratify and titrate the right therapy, I might think that in those elderly patients with this particular disease, that this might be worth trying. So let's flip back to the more research mode, and I want to ask you about a phase two study, number 779, that was presented with an interesting combination, bortezomib and varinostat in patients with mantle cell and diffuse large B cell. Yeah, this is a very interesting trial, and our group and others have actually looked at the combination of proteasome inhibitors and histone deacetylase inhibitors in a whole variety of different preclinical and clinical contexts. And it's really interesting, when you look at this preclinical data, this particular combination is remarkably synergistic. And so many of you may be aware that there was a recent clinical trial reported at ASH looking at a randomized study of bortezomib versus bortezomib plus Saha that seemed to demonstrate a really modest benefit of the combination over bortezomib alone. But what Steve Grant and his colleagues did here, and this is an extension of some very beautiful preclinical work they've done, is they looked at three cohorts of patients, including those with mantle cell lymphoma naive to bortezomib, those that had prior exposure to bortezomib, and a small number, 26 patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And so while this is a very, very heavily treated patient population, the overall response in the population was 8 out of 21 patients with mantle cell lymphoma. Across all populations, mantle cell plus large cell lymphoma, 
they had about 20, a little bit less than 25% of patients having a response with 11 out of 47 patients in this phase two. So this is not ready for prime time. This is something that I think should only be done on a clinical trial. And what I find particularly interesting is when we look at each of these drugs by themselves, we did a lot of the early work with Varinostat, which didn't have a lot of activity in large cell lymphoma. In fact, I commonly refer to it as relatively inert in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And bortezomib similarly really hasn't demonstrated marked single agent activity. But the combination of these drugs is synergistic. We don't have good insights into why, but certainly at both preclinical and in the clinical setting, that appears to be a promising combination that we need to think about how to move forward in a logical way. Let's talk a little bit about mantle cell. And there was a paper 439 presented looking at R maintenance in mantle cell. And I think that study originally got reported last year in a European setting and seemed to have a major impact in terms of how investigators looked at R maintenance. And then they updated their data at ASH. Can you talk about that? Sure. You know, it's interesting that in mantle cell lymphoma, we've sort of moved the whole spectrum from thinking about the role of minimal residual disease. And of course, this is a disease where we can track a particular gene, namely the 1114 translocation. But years ago, an original study by Howard and colleagues really failed to demonstrate a impact on treating minimal residual disease. But over the last few years, the Nordic Lymphoma Study Group and this have really begun to suggest that we can monitor minimal residual disease in mantle cell lymphoma and that there may be a value in trying to treat minimal residual disease in mantle cell lymphoma. It may actually be a very, very important prognostic feature. There's a lot of very provocative data from Martin Dreiling and the Mantle Cell Lymphoma Study Group in Germany that really suggests that trying to treat minimal residual disease in mantle cell lymphoma is really important. So in this particular study, and you're right, they did present some parts of this earlier, there was two randomizations. They had 560 patients that either received R-CHOP or R-CY-FLU, and when you look at the overall response rate, they were 87% in R-CHOP versus 78% in the R-FLU, but there was a second randomization in 310 patients who received maintenance rituximab, and there was no question that at four years, the duration of the response was 57% versus 26% in this patient population, though interestingly, there was no change in the overall survival rate to date. The study also did show that that arm of patients that got R Psi flu followed by maintenance rituximab had a very, very high incidence of infection. In fact, the highest incidence of infection in any of the subpopulations. So for many of these patients, I am now using rituximab maintenance, especially in those patients that go on to get an autologous stem cell transplant in first remission. And again, as I noted before from the Nordic Lymphoma Study Groups and a number of other studies, there really seems to be a real advantage to trying to treat minimal residual disease. And I think it's something that may emerge in the years to come as something we might be able to monitor and potentially treat. If you look at the Nordic Lymphoma Study Group, they actually used rituximab in scenarios where they saw patients who lost their molecular remission. Maybe you can comment on the phase two study of lenalidomide, rituximab, plus or minus dexamethasone, and inulinum B cell and mantle cell. Well, in this study, the senior author, Steve Schuster, they did a very interesting trial looking at lenalidomide, rituximab, and dexamethasone in patients with relapsed or refractory indolent B cell lymphoma and mantle cell lymphoma. And as many of you are probably well aware, 
lenalidomide has emerged as a very promising drug for a number of types of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, including follicular lymphoma, especially in combination with rituximab, as well as in mantle cell lymphoma. And there is now a registration-directed study looking at potential approval of lenalidomide in patients with mantle cell lymphoma. But in this study, which seems like it's pulled from concepts that are emerging rapidly in the treatment of multiple myeloma, they actually had two cohorts. The first cohort treated patients with lenalidomide at 10 milligrams a day for 28 days for two cycles with dexamethasone at 8 milligrams weekly. And after those two cycles, they assessed patients and went on to give rituximab weekly. In the second cohort, it was essentially the same treatment without dexamethasone. And interestingly, they had a total of 45 patients, including 27 in the first cohort and 18 in the second. The overall response rate in the first cohort prior to the introduction of rituximab was 37%, 60% in the second cohort. But when you looked after the second part of the first cohort where they all got rituximab, the response rates were actually remarkably similar. So I think this is a very interesting regimen. I use lenalidomide presently in my patients with relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma and have a fair number of elderly patients, several of whom have been on it for one and a couple who have been on it for more than two years who really tolerate the drug well. We use it at a dose of 10 milligrams a day without any break, so we try to keep them on for as long as possible. We find that the dose of 25 milligrams for shorter periods of time is actually not as well tolerated in a lot of these elderly patients with mantle cell lymphoma. But you can see how combinations of drugs like lenalidomide and rituximab and dexamethasone may be very good for those elderly patients with mantle cell lymphoma who may not be great candidates for combination chemotherapy, let alone autologous stem cell transplant. What about abstract 442? We've been hearing a lot now the last couple of years about the Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors and Cal 101. What about this paper that was presented at ASH? Well, there's no question that targeting these unique biological features of large cell lymphoma has become all the rage. And if you remember, one of the very first drugs that came along targeting the downstream components of the B-cell receptor were actually targeting sick. And Jonathan Freeberg, a couple of years ago, made a very nice presentation at the plenary session reporting some of his data on sick. And of course, a lot of that came from the gene expression profiling generated by Margaret Ship, sort of giving you a rational application for how to target these types of features of the disease. The BTK inhibitor, Burton's tyrosine kinase, is actually downstream of the sick kinase and actually has proven to be a target that has translated into a significant benefit in a variety of B-cell lymphomas. So this particular drug is orally available and it's an irreversible inhibitor of the BTK. And in this particular abstract, they only looked at patients with mantle cell lymphoma and they treated many patients, some of which were bortezomib naive, some of which who had been exposed to prior bortezomib. So in total, they treated about 48 patients. The median age is exactly as you would expect. And in the entire population, the overall response rate was 67%. When they looked at patients who had prior bortezomib and those who had been bortezomib naive, 
the response rate was actually a little bit higher, 75% in patients who had prior bortezomib and 58% in the patients who were bortezomib naive. I think it's too small to be able to make large dogmatic comments about the impact of prior bortezomib on the response rate. But achieving a response rate in this patient population that have seen a number of prior chemotherapies, a response rate of 67%, I think is really significant, and especially when taken into light with the fact that there were no patients who discontinued therapy secondary to adverse events, and only about 11% of patients experienced a grade 3 toxicity. We really look forward to getting some duration data on how long these responses are lasting, but so far the early signals seem to suggest that we're getting very good responses, including very good responses, as well as some durability of those responses. And I'm assuming this is going to be looked at or is being looked at earlier or in combination with bortezomib or other agents? Yeah, you know, as all these new drugs come online, it's getting harder and harder to think about how you're going to get them approved and trying to think about upfront studies where you're going to combine it with your favorite induction regimen followed by transplant or maintenance rituximab. Those sorts of things need to be designed carefully. They're not the fastest regulatory strategies for approval, but I'm sure combinations with bortezomib in the relapse setting are being planned and will be looked at shortly. Let's talk about one of my favorite topics, anyhow, since ASH last year, which is Brentuximab Vidotin. Maybe you can just briefly remind us what it is and then talk about some of the papers. We can start out with 664, looking at Hodgkin lymphoma and patients getting allotransplants. Well, Brentuximab Vidotin is a antibody drug conjugate, and some of you may remember the previous work done with the naked CD30 monoclonal antibodies against CD30-positive disease, including patients with Hodgkin's disease and anaplastic large-cell lymphoma, and save some positive experiences in cutaneous T-cell lymphoma with the naked antibody the naked antibody really wasn't that active in Hodgkin's disease or anaplastic large cell lymphoma. So subsequently, the group developed an antibody drug conjugate by developing a very interesting linker that actually linked a molecule of monomethylorostatin E, which is a very, very potent microtubule poison, and it linked it directly to the CD30 monoclonal antibody. Once this antibody binds to CD30, it gets internalized, and in the cytosol of the cell, that linker gets cleaved, allowing the monomethyl orostatin E to be liberated, and actually produces a mitotic arrest of those particular cells. So I guess, actually, for the medical oncologists in practice, I guess it's very similar sort of conceptually in terms of being an antibody drug conjugate to something they're hearing a lot about in HER2-positive breast cancer, TDM1. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is the next evolution for a lot of these compounds. And I, we've all been very impressed by some of the data with antibodies, certainly in the hematologic malignancies. But I think the next generation in terms of our thinking about this is trying to develop antibody drug conjugates. And if you think about it, Zevlin and Dibexar are examples of antibody drug conjugates, though we don't use them as much as we probably should. This is a great example of a drug that has really remarkable activity in Hodgkin's disease and anaplastic large cell lymphoma. 
And in my mind, one of the things that's going to cause us to do over the next several years is get away from developing these drugs for discrete histopathologic entities. And in this case, there's no reason to think that any CD30 positive disease could in fact be a target for this drug. And I think moving forward, as we try to harness all of what we've learned about the biology of these diseases, this is the way to begin to think about it going forward. I know there was just a big T-cell lymphoma meeting. I heard there was some interesting data presented there on bevidotin on both cutaneous T-cell lymphoma and peripheral T-cell disease. Yeah, I was just at that meeting in San Francisco, and basically any disease that expresses CD30. So interestingly, and it depends on what series you look at, anywhere between 5 and 30% of cases of peripheral T-cell lymphoma will express CD30. And we've now been able to convince insurance companies to allow us to use this drug in patients who have exhausted all other conventional therapies. And we have seen very dramatic responses. And so even if you look at the original pivotal data, for brentuximab vidoitin, there were actually a couple of patients that had to be censored from the trial because they didn't have anaplastic large cell lymphoma. They had a CD30 positive lymphoproliferative disorder not classified as anaplastic large cell lymphoma. So those two patients achieved a complete response, and I forget the follow-up, but it was extended beyond one or two years. They had not relapsed. Fascinating. Anyhow, what about this paper 664 looking at these Hodgkin patients who are going for allotransplant? Well, as many of you know, once a patient with Hodgkin's disease relapsed after autologous stem cell transplant, we're all at a loss at what to do. And while the role of allogeneic stem cell transplant continues to emerge with more and more favorable data suggesting that the benefits may start to begin to outweigh a lot of the risks, the way that these investigators thought about using bertuximab vidoitin was as a bridge to transplantation. And in fact, the study was done in collaboration with folks from the City of Hope, as well as people from the Fred Hudge Cancer Center, who have played really pivotal roles in the development of brentuximab, as well as other antibodies and antibody drug conjugates. The bottom line is that they were able to take a number of patients onto allogeneic, in this case a reduced intensity allogeneic stem cell transplant. And in this patient population, if you look at the subset treated at the City of Hope, the one-year progression-free survival was 90%, and the one-year overall survival for this patient population was 100%. So they really didn't see any great increase in non-relapse mortality, and they didn't see any reduction in engraftment. They didn't see any exacerbation of acute graft-versus-host disease or chronic graft-versus-host disease. And a lot of this data that they produced was very, very, very encouraging for now finally having a drug we can use to bridge a relatively chemotherapy refractory or resistant patient to a definitive allogeneic stem cell transplant using a new class of drugs, in this case, the ADC brentuximab vidoitin. What about the issue of how long you use bevidotin in this situation before you go to transplant? And I think that's a really good question, and it's one that we don't have a good answer for at the moment. Most people would say that you probably don't want to go too long beyond complete remission. So if you're fortunate enough to get patients into a complete remission, and in fact, when you look at the responses from the City of Hope of the 12 patients they treated, five got a complete remission, seven got pretty good partial remission. So in essence, all those patients responded, and two of the four patients at the Fred Hutch responded. They don't provide a lot of insight. The median number of cycles that these patients received was about nine and seven 
seven with a range of two to 16. So I would try to get these patients to complete remission. And once I got them pretty close to a PET negative response, I might try to give them one or two more as we take care of the logistics to get them into the transplant. I don't think this is a scenario where I would try to give the usual 16 cycles of brintuximab and then try to sort out the issues of the transplant. I view this as a bridge, and you should take that bridge the minute you got a good response. What about paper 955, Dr. Yunus? Really interesting presentation of a phase one study, but looking at bevedotin up front with chemo. Yeah, so the goal in Hodgkin's disease that's been somewhat elusive over the years is can we create a immunochemotherapy backbone just like our CHOP has been done for B-cell lymphomas. And that's been basically the goal of this particular trial. So in this study reported by Anas and colleagues, they looked at escalating doses of brintuximab giving 0.6, 0.9, and 1.2 milligrams per kilogram of brintuximab with conventionally dosed ABVD. They treated six patients at 0.6, 13 at 0.9, and six at 1.2. While there were no DLTs in either arm, there were 25 patients who had been treated with brintuximab plus ABVD, seven of whom actually developed a pulmonary toxicity, including a dyspnea, interstitial lung disease, and general pulmonary toxicity that really was not easily distinguished from bleomycin, but certainly the thought was that there was some negative interaction between the bleomycin and the brintuximab that led pulmonary toxicity to be the prominent side effect. So they went on and actually took out the ABVD and looked at 1.2 milligrams per kilogram of brintuximab with AVD, treating six patients. And those six patients actually did pretty well and had no pulmonary toxicity. So it's likely that this regimen, as it moves forward, will omit the bleomycin. And I actually think that's a good thing. The bleomycin in this case is a drug that we're not really certain what its contributions are to the ABVD backbone, and certainly it is associated with pulmonary side effects going along. So I guess in terms of moving forward in phase three, in terms of upfront strategies, obviously ABVD is not going to be combined with bevedotin, but what exactly is going to be looked at? I think he referred to ABVD versus AVD slash bevedotin. Yeah, I think the likely randomized trial would have to be compared against the standard of care, which at this point would be ABVD. So the randomized trial would have to be a brintuximab AVD compared to standard ABVD. But my guess is they're going to need to get a little bit more phase two data, but I'm certain that plans are in development for a huge international randomized study to look at this. So before I ask you about the bevedotin and anaplastic large cell lymphoma, paper number 443 that updates the phase two study looking at that, you mentioned the bleomycin or the pulmonary toxicity. Can you kind of give us a better feel for, I assume you've used this drug quite a few times? Yeah, we've used a lot of it. Can you kind of give us a better feel for clinically what kind of peripheral neuropathy is seen, when you see it, how bad it is, how irreversible it is? Yeah, I think it's not too dissimilar to the bortezomib experience. And in most patients that get it, it tends to develop after a couple of cycles. It's a classic sensory peripheral neuropathy. There were a couple of cases of motor neuropathy in the original registration-directed studies. But in general, it starts out as a mild numbness in the fingers and toes. And the real 
key to the management, like the key to the management of neuropathy associated with any drug, is to really recognize it early. And that's why the communication with the nursing staff is really important, because you really need to institute dose reductions early to mitigate the neuropathy. So the neuropathy can develop, and over time you can get it late, but in the majority of patients, if you recognize it early and dose reduce, and importantly, hold the drug until the patient gets back to baseline levels of neuropathy, then you should be able to circumnavigate the bulk of that toxicity. So what about ALCL in this 443 paper? Well, this is another really interesting paper, and T-cell lymphoma really is one of those diseases right now that's experiencing a tremendous growth in terms of the number of drugs and our understanding of the disease. But this is a really interesting study looking at patients with anaplastic large cell lymphoma because while Peripheral T-cell lymphomas in general can have 25, 30% expression of CD30. Virtually all cases of anaplastic large cell lymphoma express CD30. And in this study population, they looked at brintuximab vidoitin at 1.8 milligram per meter squared every three weeks for a total of 16 cycles, which is about a year. This was actually the data used to support the registration and approval of brentuximab in anaplastic large cell lymphoma, looking at 58 patients. So when you look at the patient population, it was a really bad patient population in terms of 72% having ALK negative disease, 62% having primary refractory disease, one in four patients having prior autologous stem cell transplants. But when you look at the overall response rate, that was 86%, with 57% of those patients having a complete remission and a median duration of response of over a year, about 13 months, and a median progression-free survival of about 14.6 months. So it's important to note that while a lot of us may think of anaplastic large cell lymphoma as the good form of T-cell lymphoma, those patients with ALK-positive anaplastic large cell lymphoma, the more favorable subtype, once they relapse, and certainly once they relapse after autologous stem cell transplant, their outcome and survival is essentially equivalent to the outcome of a patient with ALK-negative anaplastic large cell lymphoma. So this is, again, very, very promising data, and now going to lead to combination studies with CHOP-based chemotherapy to try to integrate brintuximab vidoitin up front on a CHOP backbone for patients with anaplastic large cell lymphoma. And I guess we should say that CHOP backbone is going to have vincristine pulled out. Yeah, in all likelihood, the vincristine is going to be pulled out because of the risk of toxicity. You're right. So we were talking about peripheral T-cell lymphoma, and, you know, hopefully what maybe bevedotin is going to bring in for the CD30-positive patients. What about this paper, though, looking at sort of what happened to people with peripheral T-cell lymphoma in an overall population? It's kind of sobering. Yeah, well, this is really, in my mind, a spectacular abstract that had been compiled by the group in British Columbia up at the Center for Lymphoid Cancers. And they have, up in British Columbia, a huge database of all patients that are treated with lymphoma in the province up there. So they actually had collected over 276 cases of patients with relapsed peripheral T-cell lymphoma. And as you'd expect, most of them had peripheral T-cell lymphoma not otherwise specified. About 26% had anaplastic large cell lymphoma. Another 22% had angioimmunoblastic lymphoma. And for me, what these data do is they create 
a historical reference point, and it gives us hard data on how poorly these patients actually do. People who take care of a lot of T-cell lymphoma don't need to be told how poor and aggressive this particular disease is, but the data generated here are, as you noted, really sobering. When they looked at their data set, they actually found that 62% of the patients in this study were actually refractory to the initial chemotherapy regimen. So the overwhelming number of those patients are getting a CHOP-based chemotherapy, and we all recognize that CHOP is hardly the best therapy for these patients, but we really don't have other great alternatives, and that's why we need to start looking at a lot of these new drugs in combination. The other interesting thing is when they looked at the number of patients for whom there was an intent to go to autologous stem cell transplant, 53 of the 276 patients had it clearly documented in the chart that transplant was the goal, but interestingly, only about 38 of them got to transplant. And this is another recurring theme that's been validated by Cordini and others in Italy and a number of these transplant studies where even though transplant can actually have a huge impact on the outcome of the disease, getting patients to a complete remission so they can get to transplant actually remains a huge challenge, with the other big issue being that 18%, 18%, 37 of the 276 patients were actually found to be too ill for treatment to allow them to go on with continued chemotherapy. So the last paper I want to ask you about is number 591 by Cofier et al. So as many of you are well aware, there are now three drugs in the last year or two that have been approved for T-cell lymphoma. And the first of those was a drug called prolotrexate that was approved for patients with relapsed refractory disease. The second was romadepsin, and romadepsin is a histone deacetylase inhibitor. You may remember varinostat is an HDAC inhibitor that had been approved for cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, and prior to the approval in peripheral T-cell lymphoma last June, romadepsin had been approved a year and a half ago in cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. What you may remember is the original presentation by Coiffier on the registration data that led to the approval in PTCL was based on 130 patients with relapsed and refractory peripheral T-cell lymphoma that on independent review, the overall response rate was found to be 26% with 8% of patients having a complete remission. So in this abstract presented by Coiffier and colleagues, you look at the data and you say, wow, those response rates are a lot higher than what I had actually recalled from the original presentation. And the reason it's higher is because what they're in essence doing here is presenting a subset analysis of that larger registration-directed study. And they used the logic of saying, well, The top three or the three most common subtypes of peripheral T-cell lymphoma are PTCL-NOS, angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma, and ALK-negative anaplastic large cell lymphoma. So the total number of those patients is actually 117. So it's a little bit off of the 130 that have been used, but they're really here only presenting on those three subtypes of peripheral T-cell lymphoma. So when you go down the list, you can actually see that the overall response rate among the patients with PTCL-NOS was 29%. In A, angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma, it was 30%. And in the ALK-negative anaplastic large cell lymphoma, 24%. But for the total population, it was 28%. So it's a little bit higher than the 26%. And I think what they're trying to suggest is that if you look at some of the more common subtypes 
types of T-cell lymphoma, that romadepsin may have more activity in some of those subtypes than what you might be led to believe by looking at the larger data set of 130 patients. Well, that actually makes complete sense. And again, what's going on in terms of trying to integrate all these new agents, romadepsin, prolotrexate, you know, earlier on? Yeah, it's exactly a major area focus for my lab and our team and a number of others around the country. And right now we're commencing with some combination phase ones, looking at brentuximab vidoitin plus bendamustine. We're looking at prolotrexate plus romadepsin. We're looking at combinations with carfilzomib and varinostat, looking at combinations of HDAC inhibitors and proteasome inhibitors. So right now, I don't think we're ready for prime time for a good combination that we could move into the upfront setting that could reasonably challenge CHOP. I think we're going to need another couple of years to try to identify some very active doublets. And then from those doublets, think about adding on a third agent, hopefully a monoclonal antibody or antibody drug conjugate of some sort. And I think if we can identify three active drugs and figure out how to use them together in a way that seems safe and efficacious, we could then be in a position to challenge CHOP chemotherapy in the upfront setting. I'm not sure if I heard this correctly. Did you say bevidotin and bendamustine? Yes. Bevidotin and bendamustine. Hmm. So in Hodgkin's disease, there is data that's been generated. You may remember that bendamustine had been used a lot in East Germany for patients with Hodgkin's disease. And Craig Moskowitz from Memorial has recently reported an experience with bendamustine in Hodgkin's disease. Some of you may remember, if you like looking at chemical structures, that bendamustine, in fact, is a hybrid molecule of a purine analog and nitrogen mustard. So it turns out that it has potent alkylator-type effects, and it has pretty significant activity in Hodgkin's disease. It doesn't produce the most durable of remissions, but it's certainly a potent drug in Hodgkin's disease, just as it is in other types of B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. There's also data now coming out from the French looking at bendamustine and T-cell lymphoma that seems to suggest that as a single agent in patients with relapse disease, it has very, very good activity in T-cell lymphoma. So you might think that if the paradigm seen in B-cell lymphoma where bendamustine is equivalent to or superior than CHOP-based chemotherapy based on efficacy and toxicity, thinking about how you might integrate it into the relapse setting in Hodgkin's disease or T-cell lymphoma I think is very valid. And personally, I think that depending upon the results, you might think that a combination of bendamustine plus brentuximab vidoitin could replace ICE chemotherapy as a salvage therapy prior to transplant. And that's one area where you might think about how you could position some of these new regimens without all the toxicity of the conventional chemotherapy pre-transplant. 